Welcome to A Transforming Word with Pastor Bill Buffington. This program is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Inglewood. Today on A Transforming Word. How often are we communicating the gospel to people? How often are we telling people the good news? Put out a challenge on Sunday, encouraging everybody to go out and just tell somebody, just do it. And I'm amazed that even within a church, like even in a gathering of believers, there are people that won't do it. They won't, it's just too uncomfortable to step out and go and just tell somebody else what God has done. And I pray that God will break that up, that we would just be free, that we would get to a place and we'll see it as we get going, that we would come to a place where, man, there wouldn't be anything holding us back. Sharing the good of Jesus can be intimidating. What do you say? How do you say it? When do you share? But the beautiful thing about sharing your faith is that there is no one way to do it. What reaches one person may be different than what reaches another. Pastor Bill will challenge you in today's message to think about how often you're telling people about Jesus. If you're not, what's holding you back? What God has done for his children including you, is too good to keep to yourself. Now, here's Pastor Bill in the book of Leviticus chapter 8 for today's edition of A Transforming Word. We don't buy our righteousness. We don't provide it for ourselves. It's been provided for us via Christ. And so we want to show up for service in what Christ has provided, clothed in his righteousness, clothed by him. For these guys, this is what they needed to show up in because God had said so. Um, as priests, as guys that were going to serve in this office, this was the outfit that they needed to show up with. And for you and I, we also have the righteousness of Christ is how we need to show up for service. If I show up to serve God without the righteousness of Christ, is it of any benefit? No. Matthew 7. Those that serve, they prophesy, they cast out demons, they did many works. And God says, I never knew you. That's not where we want to be. We don't want to serve like that. We don't want to serve in a way where God said, I don't even know you. I want to first be known by him. Um, that is of the utmost importance. Then we go on in our service. And so the right, the, the outfits, the garments were provided for them. Just a few things on the garments. Um, you know, there's the ephod. There's all the things that speak of the priesthood and all their symbolism. And in verse eight says, then he put the breastplate on him and he put the urim and the thummim in the breastplate. And for you guys, remember the Urim and the Thummim. These were, it meant lights and perfections. These are the things that the priests would use to discern the will of God. And so the way the priesthood worked back then is that people would come to the priests. As they were seeking God, if you wanted to seek God, you went to the servant. You went to the priest and said, I want to know. I'm praying about what, I want to know what God's will is on this. And they would inquire of the Lord on your behalf and the Urim and the Thummim somehow between this, there's only speculation. We can't say for sure how they would know, but they would be able to come up with the will of God and give it back to them. That was important. That's an important role. I think of that thing right there like, wow, imagine being in a place where you're giving God's direction. Like people are coming to you to hear from God. That's how the priesthood worked. That's how that, that ministry worked, that the priest served in this role where they received from the Lord and gave it to men. They received from men and gave it to the Lord. They were in this in-between spot between man and then New Testament. There is no priest anymore. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man. Who is it? It's the man Christ Jesus, right? There's nothing else. There's no man in this sort of role. So I just want to point that out because we don't want to be looking for that guy now. Is there someone that you need to go to to get a word from the Lord? Yes, no. Not enough. You might go to a friend and get a word from the Lord, but you don't have to. 
You can go to the Lord and get a word from the Lord, right? You can get on the floor, in your room, pray, open up your Bible, and God is giving you all kind of words. Bam, 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 everything you need right there. It's not to say that God wouldn't do that, but we don't, this is not our prescription. We don't run to the priest. We don't run down to the church. We don't run down to the pastor to, to discern the will of God. You guys have access to the Lord. You got a relationship with Jesus Christ of your own. And so it's different. But these guys had a very important role that God was giving them and that they would work in that way. I think it's interesting in the New Testament. God says that we also are have a priest. Everybody write down first Peter chapter two, verses five and verse nine. I want to read it to you real quick. First Peter chapter two. I want to read verse five and verse nine. First Peter two, four and five. It says coming to him, speaking of Jesus as to a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious in verse five. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we're reminded here in first Peter that we have a similar, not the same, but a similar ministry that we're living stones that we're being built up into a spiritual house and that we're a holy priesthood. Um, in what way are we a holy priesthood? In, in what way? Um, I'm not a go-between. I'm not an in-between, but I do get to be a bridge. We do get to be in a place we lead people to him. Uh, we do get to be in a place where we intercede on his behalf for other people. A holy priesthood says to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And look down in verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so again, the last part of verse nine, we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Um, again, in a different way than the Old Testament priests were his own special people that we may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God said all those things. And one thing we get to do is proclaim his goodness. We get to speak his praises. The one that brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We get to help bring other people along that way. We get to help speak that to other people, speak to them about what God has done for us. I just would ask us, how often are we sharing with people that are in darkness? How that we were brought out of darkness? How frequently are we doing that? How regularly do you tell people that are still in the dark that you used to be in the dark and that you've been brought into the light? How often are we communicating the gospel to people? How often are we telling people the good news, put out a challenge on Sunday, encouraging everybody to go out and just tell somebody, just do it. And I'm amazed that even within a church, like even in a gathering of believers, there are people that won't do it. They won't. It's just too uncomfortable to step out and go and just tell somebody else what God has done. And I pray that God will break that up, that we would just be free, that we would get to a place and we'll see it as we get going, that we would come to a place where, man, there wouldn't be anything holding us back. There wouldn't be anything to hold us back from speaking that, from telling somebody. Why would we hold that back? Why wouldn't we just freely share that? What would hold us back? What would hinder us from just freely telling people who he is and what he's done, how much they need him? And so um, back over here, back to Leviticus chapter eight, they were... First, cleanse. Then they were clothed. And last part of the clothing, um, it says in verse nine, and he put on, he put the turban on his head, also on the turban on its front. He put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, beginning in verse 10, they've been cleansed. They've been clothed. Now they're going to be anointed for service. 
And so I'm going to read a chunk from here. Verse 10, it says, also, Moses took the anointing oil and he anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it. And he consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all its utensils and the labor in its base to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then Moses brought Aaron's sons and put tunics on them and girded them with sashes and put hats on them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so first they were cleansed, then they were clothed. Now they're anointed for service. Uh, He anoints them. So this oil right here that he's putting on them, it was sprinkled first on everything else. It was sprinkled on non-living things. It was sprinkled on the altar and sprinkled on the laver and sprinkled on the uh, the utensils. And he sprinkled it on the base and all those things were just to set those items aside to consecrate them. But I want you to notice that he sprinkled it on the stuff, but he didn't sprinkle it on Aaron's sons. What did he do? He poured it on them. And why is that significant? Why is it important? If I sprinkle you, you're going to get a little bit, you know, a little sprinkle, you know. But if I pour it on you, you're going to be drenched in it. And they're going to be drenched in this oil that's going to be poured over them. I want you to keep in mind, they just put on these really ornate, very expensive, very special garments. They just put those on. Now that they're in their best, the oil is being put on them. And after that, we're going to see that this blood this is a messy ordination. This is a messy ceremony. You know, it's a messy consecration ceremony. There would be things on this outfit that they would never forget this day. It would always speak of what had taken place on this day. But there's now the anointing. The oil is put upon their lives. And uh, once again, first it was sprinkled on all the non-living things, but then it was poured upon them. Just for the imagery of the picture in Psalm 133, it's only three verses but it gives us a picture and it's illustrating the, you know, how beautiful it is to the Lord when brethren are dwelling together in unity. But I want to read it to us in Psalm 133 verses one through three. It says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard of Aaron, running down the edge of his garment. And God usually says when brethren dwell together, it's like the anointing that happened and the oil runs down the head. It runs down the beard. It's just running all down him. That's what's happening. So I'm looking and saying, why? Why that? Why is it all messy? Why is this poured all over? Why couldn't he just have a little bit? You know, when we pray over people and we anoint them with oil, we just take a little dab and you just put a little bit there because y'all wouldn't put up with that. Y'all be like, why you put all that oil on me? Y'all be, you leave. You'll run up out of here. We'll be kicked out of houses, you know. We just put a little bit nice and neat, make a little cross on your forehead with the oil. They just poured it all over him as an anointing. And it's symbolic of, I believe, the Holy Spirit Um, in the New Testament. For those that are going to be of service, those that are going to serve God, we need his spirit upon our life. This whole idea, um, and it's kind of messed up in some places of the anointing and what it is to be anointed by God. And some people think you're anointed if you shout louder. You're anointed if you, you know, if you hoop after you get done preaching and it's anointed if it's not none of that. As you look at this right here, it's symbolic. Oil is being poured on them. For you and I, as God has called us to service to him, um, we do need the Holy Spirit upon our lives. Uh, We do need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We do need to be immersed in God's spirit that his power would be upon our lives, that we'd be able to serve not in our own might, not in our own strength, but in his power and in his might. And so here oil is poured out on them. Verse 12, again, it says that he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. 
Again, the word consecrate means to set them apart for God's service. So this anointing here is God is saying this is setting these guys apart for service to me, for them to be able to serve me. Verse 13 and 14. Then Moses brought Aaron's sons and he put tunics on them and he girded them with sashes and he put hats on them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he brought the bull for the sin offering. Then Aaron and his sons laid their hand on the head of the bull for the sin offering. And so there's the cleansing. Then there's the clothing. Then now they've been anointed for service. And now there's a sin offering. A sin offering is going to be offered up for them. And ceremonially, they had the washing. But now sin is going to be punished. And it's kind of two different things. We know that our sins are washed away. But our sins are only washed away because they've been the punishment went somewhere else. We know the punishment for our sins was on, was put upon Jesus. The chastisement of our peace, it was upon him. He took our sins upon himself and he was punished so that we could not, we wouldn't have to be. And then we get to be washed and we get to be cleansed. And so for these guys, yes, they've been washed and now sin's got to be dealt with. So for some people, this is a difficult thing. The idea that God's just not, sin's just not going away. It's going to be paid for. Every sin for every person for every generation, sin will be dealt with because God is holy. There's only a couple ways. Back here in this era, sin would be dealt with that your sins would be dealt with in that it could be put onto an animal. There could be animal sacrifice for your sins. And so you'll see that they put their hand on the head of the animal, transferring their guilt to the animal. Then that animal that now bears the guilt of their sin is slaughtered and sacrificed and offered up sin offering. Or... You die in your sin and you pay for it. Those are the two alternatives. And now in New Testament, you look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He's the Lamb of God that sacrificed the once and for all. He died already. He took the sins of the world upon himself. He was accused wrongly, beaten unfairly, crucified publicly, bled and died for the sins of the world. And all that would put their faith in him, God said, I'll take your sins upon myself, die for him. So that's our option now. Either we believe in Jesus and his death on the cross, and his rising from the grave, and, and he dies in our place. Our sins have been dealt with in Jesus. Either we believe that or we're in our sins and we're going to die and we're going to stand before God in our sins and then they'll be dealt with. And that means you will go to hell. That means if someone dies and they stand before God in their sin, there is no other sacrifice. There is no other way People don't get to die and meet God and say, oh, my bad, I was wrong. Give me one more chance. I don't know why, but I feel like my whole childhood I watched movies. And all the movies I watched as a kid led me to believe that if there was a God, when I met him, I could make a decision then. And so I have watched, and it may just be me. Maybe you guys watch different movies. When I, I feel like I watched all these movies that they always kind of gave this option. People would die. And they would find out, they would see hell, they would see God, and they get to come back and do some good deeds and get a second chance. And um, I forget there's some guy that smoked cigars. I, I watched all these movies as a kid. That's what it was like. And that's what I used to think. Well, if there is a God and I find out, then I'll make a deal. I'll get to go back and make it right. It don't work like that, according to the Bible. The Bible says uh, it's appointed to man once to die, and after this, the judgment. You live once, you die once, you judge once. Um, you don't get to come back and do it over you don't get to have a second chance. Um, you die and you deal with whatever your decision had been. Whatever state you die in, you're locked in for eternity in that position, in that place. And since you don't know when you're going to die, we want to live ready. If you were a student at school, and, and now it doesn't work like this, but let's say that it did. Let's say you were a student at school 
And at some time during the school year, nobody knows when, there's going to be a bell that rings. Whatever your grades are when that bell rings, those are your grades for the year. You know, you would want to keep an A until that bell rings, right? If you have an F, you want to be concerned because that bell might ring today and I'll just have an F all year. You would be, hopefully you'd have a mindset, to, if you care about your grades, to get that together. Well, something way weightier than that is our spiritual condition. And you, whatever condition you die in, you're locked in. That's a great thing if you're saved. That means that no matter what happens to the believer, that the person is saved, when you die, it's just going to be great. You're going to meet the Lord. You're going to heaven. Sins are washed away. You're a child of God. Never going to have another problem again. You're never going to hurt, never going to suffer, never going to sin. You're going to be in God's presence. It's going to be awesome for the believer. That's the hope that we have. So if you're a Christian, whatever little drama you got down here, the worst is ever going to be for you. And it probably ain't even that bad because God helps you when you're down here too. And so for the believer, we have a really sweet position. Our sins are washed away. We know we're not perfect, but we know we're forgiven. We know we mess up. We know God loves us. We know we deserve help. We know we get to heaven. We have this awesome that God said I gave it to you. And that impacts our life right now. I live now and I got peace. I got peace with God. I can enjoy the peace of God. And I have a hope. I got a future and a hope. I know where I'm going when I die. It's going to be awesome. So for the believer, that's where we live. And we do life. And we hopefully minister to people. And we do the thing God's called. We go through the rest of this life with that in our back pocket. I know I'm going to heaven when it's over. So even on a really bad week and a really bad day and a really bad season, we know that it's only going to be bad for so long. It won't be bad forever for us, though. And we know that. We know that it'll be good way longer than it was bad. Whatever little bad you suffer down here on earth, it'll never compare to how long it's going to be good for you. And so for the believer, we have this hope and we just can look forward. And as believers get old and they get up in age and they just know that some people look forward. They just mean, I, I can't wait. I've heard people talk like that and I believe they meant it. I, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to meeting my Lord. But a non-believer doesn't have that. Someone who don't know the Lord, right now, this is the best that they could possibly have. This is the best. Whatever life is for them right now, it's the best it could be. And they just have a hope. Not even a hope. They have a certain judgment that they know is coming. They may not know it, though. That's the, I think one of the worst parts of hell will be that there were people that didn't believe that it existed. That they believed a lie. And they don't believe that they'll pay for their sins. They don't believe that there's a, a place of torment. I think that'll be the worst thing is to have lived your life like it didn't exist and then die and be in the place that you said didn't exist. You can't deny it now. And so, again, sin's going to be dealt with here. And I just want to make that point for us that sin never goes away unless it's been dealt with. And so if you have never dealt with it by Casting it upon Jesus, receiving Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, believing in him that he died for your sins and he rose from the grave and confessing him as Lord of your life. If you've done that, your sins have been dealt with. And so you don't live under the condemnation and guilt and shame of your sin. You ought to be a worshiper and a thankful individual, thankful for what God has done for you. And so for these guys here, again, they've been cleansed. They've been clothed. Now they've been anointed. Now there's a sacrifice of sin that's being offered. So again, verse 14 through 17. And they brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons, and they laid their hands on the bull for the sin offering. And Moses killed it. And then he took the blood and put some on the horns of the altar all around with his finger. And he purified the altar and he poured the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. Then he took all the fat that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver and the two kidneys and their fat. And Moses burned them on the altar. And I'm sorry, but the bull, its hide, its flesh, its offal, that's its 
dung or, you know, the stuff that comes out of it. He burned with fire outside the camp as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so they took the sin offering and they dealt with it as God had prescribed, put his hand on it, took it. They cut it up. They put the parts that were supposed to be burned, burnt, the stuff that had to go outside the camp. They took it outside the camp and this thing was offered up to the Lord in verses 18 through 21. Now there's going to be a burnt offering that's offered up. And so look at 18 through 21. It says, then he brought the ram as the burnt offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hand on the head of the ram and Moses killed it. And then he sprinkled the blood all around the altar and he cut the ram into pieces and Moses burnt the head, the pieces of the fat. Then he washed the entrails and the legs in water and Moses burnt the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt sacrifice for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so what was significant here with this ram offering, you had the sin offering. Now you had this ram that's being offered up as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the significant thing is that the whole thing was going to be offered. Nothing wasted. The whole thing offered up to the Lord. What's that symbolic of is that God wants your whole life. God wants you to surrender all of who you are. And so this burnt offering was a sweet smelling aroma. He liked it. It pleased him. It was a sweet smelling aroma to the Lord. But if you notice in verse 21, it was the whole ram, the whole thing on the altar. I think this is important for us. Some of us would like to serve God with some of our life. God, I want to serve you this much, but I want this much of my life for me. I want to have some fun. Some of us want to serve God. We can space it out. God says, I want all of your life. Can I have it all? How much of you did Jesus die on the cross for? All of you. Not a little bit. All of you. Every part of you, every gift, every talent, every ability, every God said, I died for all of you. I want the whole thing. I want everything you got for me. The whole thing. That pleases me. That's a sweet smell to me when someone gives all of themselves to me. We all know Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we are encouraged there in Romans 12 to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, it says. God says, look, I want you to offer yourself up to me as a living sacrifice. The thing with a living sacrifice, God says, you know, I guess if God just killed us, right, we could be a sacrifice, but God said, no, 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 I want you dead. I want a living sacrifice. I think it's harder to be a living sacrifice than a dead one. Because if you're a dead sacrifice, how many times you die? One time. Done. Sacrifice over. You got me. But a living sacrifice, God said, I want you to live for me, dead to you, but alive to me. So every day you're living sacrificially. Every day you're dying to yourself to live for me. Every day you're living, but you're a living sacrifice. Can we say that about our life? God, my life's a living sacrifice. I'm alive, but I've died to me for your glory, to worship you, to, to give you all of my life. I'm a living sacrifice to you, all of me for you. And so I challenge us to consider uh, as these guys' lives are being set apart in service and consecrated for the work and they've been washed and they've been, you know, clothed and they've been anointed and now their sins have been dealt with, the sin offerings gone forth and now the offerings are going up to the Lord and God says, give me a burnt offering in this place, right there, burnt offering. I want to massage that in. I want all of you, all of you for me. And so why is they offered a burnt offering? As though it's saying, because you haven't given all of me to you, the sacrifice, give me all of that. But for us, New Testament saints, God says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. I like all of your life. And I'm challenged by that. As, as I look at my life, I'm looking at this earlier and I'm looking at my own life. I can't say that, you know, God, I haven't given all of my life. Uh, and I start studying my life and looking at pieces and parts and things that God says, I want it all. 
And I wonder this, I wonder what would be different. Like how much more would God do? How much greater could think? What if God had all of all of us? That's all we have time for today on The Transforming Word. But we're so glad you joined us for today's teaching on Pastor Bill. As we continue learning from the book of Leviticus together, our prayer is that you begin to understand where you come from. Knowing your roots is so important to understanding your faith and the heart of God. You may think all the rules within the Bible are outdated or just plain don't make sense, but they were there for a reason. They weren't there to punish, but rather to guide. And who doesn't need a little guidance from time to time? We hope you continue to learn more from the book of Leviticus and encourage you to read on on your own. If you're interested in hearing additional teachings from Pastor Bill, you'll find them on our website, CalvaryInglewood.org. If you live in or near the Inglewood area, we'd love to meet you and invite you to join us for worship this weekend. You can get service times and location information at CalvaryInglewood.org. You'll even find links to stream our services if you're unable to be with us in person, and you can catch up on previous messages online. That website again is CalvaryInglewood.org. As we come to the end of our time with you today, we want you to know that we're grateful to have you as part of our listening audience. Would you join us in praying for others who are tuning in and possibly hearing about Jesus for the first time? Please pray that their hearts will be open to the truth that changes lives. Thanks for praying, and thanks for joining us on A Transforming Word.